We're in a series in Galatians, and we're walking through verse by verse. And this morning, we are going to dig in, particularly with verse 16, into the heart of Galatians. We've been talking about Paul's emphasis on the gospel versus false gospels, but this morning, he uses the word justification for the first time. It's the first time that it appears in the scriptures, and he will use it three times in verse 16 alone. And so we want to focus in our time together this morning and these verses, walking through them, on that theology, that doctrine, that heart of Christianity that sets it apart from every other faith, the subject of justification. And I want you to see three things. I want you to See, first of all, justification and what it is. And I want to beat that into your brains this morning. We want to be a church that if we're clear in anything, that we're able to understand the heart of our faith, the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, the heart of every Christian based on justification. We want to understand justification. So I want to beat that into your heads. And then secondly, I want to show you how this law, which is constantly creeping in, obedience earning the favor of God versus the favor of God already being a feat accomplished. It's already accomplished. And now we obey from His love. We don't obey for His love. I want to show you how to beat that law off by the law. And then lastly, I want to show you the wonderful application of justification. That it's not just a dusty theology or or doctrine on a shelf, but it works itself out every day. And it helps to beat my blues. It helps to beat the blues when I focus again and I see clearly the cost are that by which I am justified being a loving Savior who gave Himself for me by shedding red blood on a cross. So you ready? We have outlines available in the back, but I've just given you the outline, so let's, let's dig in. Um, last year, November uh, the 13th, I mean November the 27th, 2016, a man by the name of Kermit Mary Ingram Sr. died. And I like it that his middle name was Mary. And here's his obituary. Kermit, also known as Kurt, Mary Ingram Sr. passed away in the early morning hours of November 27, 2016 at the main veterans home in Augusta. He was born on January 13, 1929 in Sherman Mills. He was the son of, and it goes on, and the brother of, he was a widower. He grew up on a potato farm in Silver Ridge, and as soon as he was eligible, he joined the Army Air Corps. During his working years, he was a small businessman and entrepreneur, including time as a funeral director and also as an air condition and refrigeration contractor. He then retired. He retired to Camden, Maine, and while a resident at 63 Washington Street Home for Seniors, 
he spent many, many hours by the roadside waving to passerbyers. And he soon became known as the Washington Street Waver. In fact, Don McLean, who wrote American Pie, would later write a song about the waving man based on Kermit's activity. Now there's a backstory there to this obituary. And you need to know the backstory. It all began when he moved into this senior home, a large Tudor-style home for senior retirees, singles, on Washington Street. Kermit, Mary, was a smoker. And they didn't allow smoking inside. He was also bound to a wheelchair. Now it snows in Maine. And so he would every day in the morning and frequently during the day, he would take his wheelchair in his wheelchair and he would go to the street to smoke a cigarette. So he started taking his cigarette breaks close to the street. And as people would come by, he would wave at them. And he did that every day, multiple times a day. And people began to look forward to going down Washington Street for the waving man. But it all began because of a rule. A rule that he must not break. A law that he must keep. No smoking inside this house. But it led him to go to the street and have contact every day, even with strangers, to wave at them and to greet them with a smile. So much so that you Google Kermit Ingram or just Google, don't do it now, just Google the waving man and read the flood of national articles uh, even, they even did a documentary on this guy who every day would wave. Hey, hey, hey. In verse 19 and 20, Paul is writing his obituary. And he is going to describe in these verses the circumstances of his own de- demise. He says in verse 19 that he died to the law. And we want to look at that. What does that mean, died to the law? Because Paul is writing, as we have seen in previous weeks, in the context of a small church in Galatia. And this letter would have gone to all the churches in that region. But they have been infiltrated with false gospel teachers or as Martin Luther says in his commentary on Galatians, schoolmen who came in after Paul had established these churches and they said, okay, you Gentiles, we're Jews and we are circumcised and and additionally, we don't sit in unclean places or even eat with unclean people. So you've got Jesus, we've got Jesus, you need to be circumcised and you need to sit over there. So they're not even having table fellowship. They're not even celebrating communion. It would be like two rivers, Jewish believers on one side, Gentile believers on the other side. And it was a false gospel that said, 
the Gentiles must be separated from us until they do something in addition to Christ in order to earn the favor of God that would pronounce them clean. And if there's a theme out of these verses, it's this. No one can be pronounced clean by faith in themselves. Faith in their works, their obedience, their goodness. And everyone, anyone, can be pronounced clean by faith in Christ, period. Two instances. No one can be pronounced clean by faith in themselves. I read... Maybe I'm just an old guy. Maybe I got it because my dad always did it. But I read the newspaper every day. And I read the obituaries. I don't read sports. It doesn't really interest me. Obituaries interest me. And I can't tell you how many times it gets into the body of the obituary about how good a person they were. How they donated to charity, which is a good thing. How how good a neighbor they were, which is a great thing. But unless they put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's a false gospel that says you get God's pronouncement of cleanness and thus the benefit of eternal life based on your charity, based on your good works, based on your just being a good person. And don't we hear that? This is, this is as relevant as today. Well, Did you go to so-and-so's funeral? Yeah. I don't know if they were a Christian or not, but she sure was a good woman. That's a false gospel to, to put your hope that that person will have eternal life based on their goodness and not Christ's goodness. But on the same hand, everyone, anyone that puts their faith in Christ alone can be saved. And do you understand that that's a scandal? One is common. It's street level. It's the way that people save themselves or comfort themselves with a false gospel. Well, they don't know anything about... In fact, they didn't want anything to do with God, but they were such a good person. They were so honest. They worked hard. But on the other hand, that person, Jeffrey Dahmer, I can remember seeing on TV his court appearance. And then later, I can remember reading from Chuck Colson in Prison Fellowship his testimony. But standing in the courtroom, standing before the bar and a judge, he said, Your Honor, I don't ask or seek any mercy from this court. I am guilty. I can only throw myself at the feet of a larger, bigger judge, God, and plead for the mercy of of Christ. Why did he have to say that? He's going to die. He's going to be executed. Why did he have to say that? It didn't get him anything. And then later, he was a mass murderer, a serial killer, a cannibal. But he will, the scandal, a thief on the cross, the scandal of grace is that anyone, be it true, that looks to Christ alone as their Savior, will be pronounced clean. Let me beat this into your head for just a minute. This word in verse 16, 
justified, 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 appears three times, and as I said, this is the first appearance. And you might have a footnote that says, counted righteous. And when Scott was reading earlier in verse 21, he said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would die for no purpose. So it's, it's synonymous with righteousness. But the, the essence of the word means to be pronounced clean. Justification, and it's the theology part of this sermon, justification is a forensic or a legal term. Imagine a courtroom. The judge at the end of a trial will pronounce the verdict. He will either pronounce condemnation. He will pronounce guilty, dirty, unclean, and he will condemn you. Or he will pronounce justification. He will pronounce that you are not guilty, you are not unclean, but you are clean. Now I just said something that may be a little new for you. Because understand, justification is not simply God not condemning you, but He's making a pronouncement in that courtroom. He's not simply saying, I don't condemn you, I don't find you guilty anymore. What he's doing is he's looking at you and he's saying, you are perfectly righteous. You are perfectly clean. You are perfectly justified in my sight. Something happened for that. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number 60, and it's too long for me to read, defines justification as not simply, not simply me being pronounced clean in God's sight by God legally, but he says that there is something, in the Heidelberg Catechism, it says that the obedience of Christ, the life of Christ, the record of Christ is imputed to me as well. And it's in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, that we get the, the terminology, just as if I've never sinned for justified. That God looks at me just as if I have never sinned and then additionally, I'm not an empty vessel. He pours into me all the obedience and all the life of Jesus Christ. Psalm 143. Psalm 143, verses 1, 2, and 11. This is not new. David driven in his despair and racked with guilt, knowing that there was no way he could become clean by the blood of bulls or, or lambs on the altar, said, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness, not my own. Don't answer me according to what I've done, but according to your cleanness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So David is looking to the judge. He's looking to his father, and he's saying, 
if I'm to go on to life with you, even eternal life, I must be made clean and pronounced clean in your sight. And that requires a righteousness that is not my own. Martin Luther says, The Christian is not one who has no sin, but one to whom God imputes not his sin through faith in Christ. That is why we so often repeat and beat this into your minds. Martin Luther took his cues from the Apostle Paul. All throughout Galatians, he will beat this into the heads of the church at Galatia. Martin Luther, 500 years ago this year, we celebrate the Reformation, nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door and began the Great Reformation. It was based on verse 16. That we are not justified, we are not pronounced clean by what we do, now or ever, no one can be. And yet, anyone can be pronounced clean by what he did. And he alone, Jesus Christ. I know you're saying, Bill, you spent way too long on the first point. I got it. Move on. Can you share it? Doggone it. Can you share it? We don't have Thursday night evangelism here at Two Rivers. We've never had an evangelism campaign. We don't do evangelism training, though that's a worthy program. We don't, we don't tell you that there's a, a certain day or a certain quarter where we're going to rally the neighborhood and go door to door. I'm giving you evangelism training right now. There's only one lesson you've got to learn. Be able to share clearly, briefly, justification by faith in Christ alone with another person. Practice that. Practice that. Dilbert, uh, the Dilbert comics, uh, one, of the, one of the guys is saying, you know, I'm not sure if this project is um, really up to speed. I'm not sure. There, there might be some errors in this thing. And so Dilbert says, well, do the rubber duck test. He's like, the rubber duck test? He says, yeah, you know how when you, when you share it with another person, when you talk about it to another person, it'll kind of show you whether there's an error or whether it's a good thing. Just do that to a rubber duck. And I'm like, silly, but I'm asking you whether it be to an inanimate object or to your friend, but be prepared to do it to a listening world because it's the one thing that all Christianity hinges on and we've got to get it straight. You've got to get it straight. You must know this. If you can do it by way of an illustration, all the better. And, and time it. Try to do it in less than 60 seconds. An elevator talk. Martin Luther did it this way. He said there's two books. He called it the Great Exchange. There's your book. Everything in your life, all your sin, all your transgression, all your offenses, mentally and physically, everything that you've ever done is in that book. And that book condemns you. And then there's another book, The Life of Christ. Everything that he's ever done. Perfection. Love. God honoring. And at the cross, 
that book of Christ was taken and put into your life, your book was put into His life. And God pronounced you clean as His firstborn and only Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no difference in you and in Him. Scandalous, radical, earth-shaking. Martin Luther could do it with a visual image. Can you? Think about it. That's our evangelism. That's our witness. The world's aching to hear that because the world is tempted over and over again. Individuals, just like I shared with you earlier, on the street are looking to be saved or to earn favor with God, earn His favor, earn eternal life with God by being good people. And that's a false gospel. So I want to show you in verses 17, uh, 18, and 19, and then 21, how to beat the law of works through capital D, capital law. Romans 10, verse 3, tells us that we have a propensity in the absence of understanding justification by faith in Christ alone. If you don't get that, here's what's going to happen. Being ignorant of the righteousness, which is another word for justification, being pronounced clean, that comes from God, and they seek to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see what's happening? These schoolmen, as Martin Luther would say, these infiltrators in the church, because they were fuzzy on justification by faith alone, that righteousness must come from God and cannot be met in any degree by men, because they were fuzzy on it, they were making their own laws. They were making their own system to be justified before God. And they were failing in that to submit and surrender themselves to the righteousness that only comes from God. They looked to themselves and they didn't look to God. We will do the same thing. If we drift, we will start thinking, wow, sometimes God really must like me. I have been to church so faithfully and I'm serving in children's church and in the nursery. I'm teaching a Sunday school class. I'm going to my community group. I'm contributing. I'm reading my Bible every day. And I feel really good about myself. And then we fall off. And we think God thinks differently about us. You realize He doesn't? He doesn't think any differently about you. I like it as Keller puts it, there's nothing that you can do to cause God to like you any more, and there's nothing you can do to cause God to like you any less. Well, now that raises the question of verse 17, where if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners as Christ in a servant. What he's saying is what he will say elsewhere in Romans. If I have this incredible freedom, if I'm completely forgiven, if I'm pronounced in that courtroom clean, then I can go out and do anything I want, right? And he's saying, in essence, you could, but you won't. Because not only was that a pronouncement, but it was a transfer of the life of Christ into you. You have the life of Christ at work in you now. And that is going to change your heart and your mind toward things. And he's saying, this is not an easy way for cheap 
grace to happen. He's saying we're not going to go out there and be found sinners, and therefore Christ is the vehicle to give us permission to sin. That's what he's saying here in this challenging language. The, um, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, I can give you a quick test. When they were talking about being justified by the works of the law, the works of the law, think about the Ten Commandments, think about Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, think about uh, ceremonial law, think about... Uh, you know, relational law, they lived in a theocracy of, of the government, was the priesthood, all of those laws. Paul was saying, we cannot be justified by those laws because we ourselves know that we cannot even keep them. He says there, look, um, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Peter, Church of the Galatian, the apostles, we all believe in justification. And if we start trying to rebuild it, in verse 18, if we try to, to, to make this Frankenstein of theology where I'm justified by Christ alone, I say that, I believe it, but then I start adding these other things, and in addition to that, in order to ensure God's favor, I do these things, I'm actually a transgressor. I'm actually sinning and doing that. How do you, how do you defeat the flesh? Right now, what is it you're struggling with? What is it you're struggling with? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an abuse of something. Maybe it is a failure to do something, something that you should be doing that you are not doing. Maybe there's something, maybe there's a, an attitude or a heart of bitterness or unforgiveness. Where in the flesh are you struggling, grappling to defeat it? And then you come to Matthew 5, you're having your quiet times in Matthew 5. And I find the Beatitudes, if I don't understand justification by faith alone, if I don't understand that I'm pronounced righteous and clean, Matthew 5 is oppressive. It's harder on me than the Ten Commandments. Verse 21, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. In other words, if I call somebody a fool, I'm going to hell. If I'm angry in my heart or in my mind, I have broken God's law. That law terrifies me because I, I struggle with anger. I get angry with people. Boy, I've got a top ten hit list, and you don't want to know how I want to hit people. <laughs> I mean, it is. And I'm like, Lord, you say right here that if I, if I say, man, that person's an idiot. That person is stupid. 
That person just is not with it. They are less than me in their thinking. They're a fool. I'm liable to hell. So this verse terrifies me. It humbles me because this law shows me my failure. I'm not like this. Why not? It causes me to sigh. But it also points me to cry out for a Savior. Because I know that He looks at me and He says, I said of old, if you murder someone physically, you broke the law. Now I say if you harbor anger in your heart toward anyone, you've murdered them. You've broken the law. It points me to fulfill the law, not in myself because I see my failure, but to look for someone that did fulfill the law and that person, to have that record of the fulfillment of it transferred to me for my sins in the past, my sins in the present, my sins in the future. This is heavy stuff. This is all, this is the heart of the gospel that we're talking to this morning. But it's slippery. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, said, I myself have difficulty in holding this definition of Christ, which Paul here gives. So deeply has the doctrine that Christ is a lawgiver entered like oil into my bones, so that the very hearing of the name of Christ, my heart would tremble and quake for fear, for I was persuaded that he was a severe judge. How are we going to beat this law? Martin Luther says this. We have a tendency to read these passages of Scripture. The do this, or I command. And that law, we see our shortcomings and our failure. But we don't see a rescue. And he's saying, if you're not careful, he said, like oil in my bones, he said, I had come to see Christ. I had come to see God as a very, very strict lawgiver and judge. He said, but I know my comfort is when I see Christ not as a strict judge and lawgiver, but as a savior, a rescuer, a lawkeeper who transferred it to me. Therefore, when temptation or trouble or despair comes to me because of my disobedience or my failure to keep the law, I can now go to Christ rather than avoiding Him or fearing Him. I've got to move on, but Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, tell us how we can beat the law through a greater law. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It deserves its own sermon, but underline in your Bible, baptized into His death. What does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ's death? Here's what William Perkins 
great Puritan said. He said, We are in mind and meditation to consider Christ crucified, and first we are to believe that he was crucified for us. This being done, we must go yet farther. And as it were, spread ourselves on the cross of Christ, believing and withal beholding ourselves crucified with Him. Martin Luther says that we are so cemented by this pronouncement of being clean and whole, justification, that when Christ hung on the cross, we hung on the cross with Him. There were four things, Philip Ryken says, there were four things to bear in mind that hung on the cross. There was, obviously, Jesus Christ hung on the cross. There was a placard announcing Him as the King that hung on the cross. There was, as we see in Colossians, there was our own debt of sin being canceled. That cancellation policy was nailed on the cross. But you also were nailed on the cross. Think about it. God has no judgment left for you. He has no nail across left for you. He's already used it. So that Paul can say, for through the law, I died to the law. He doesn't simply mean saying, I no longer look to the law as my Savior, but he said, I fulfilled the law's requirements in that I was so embedded with Jesus Christ that he took me, my sins, as if my own person died on that cross so that now I can say to Satan, who troubles my soul with my sin, I've already died. There's no death left. The judge can't, he's already pronounced, you can't die twice. I've died to that law. And now I'm able to rise to my feet and live for Jesus Christ. I think he's right. I think this Puritan writer is right. We often visualize Christ on the cross, but visualize yourself on that cross as well. And both were baptized in death and blood. Both were baptized under the wrath of God. Both were judged to have fulfilled the law's command. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And now that cross is empty. He has nothing but life to give you. No more punishment. That answers the question, how can a righteous God accept an unrighteous person? Well, he must, make, he must pronounce them righteous or clean. How does he make them clean? Well, he makes them clean by the imputation of the transfer of Christ to them. He makes them clean by the fulfillment of the law completely by Jesus Christ. But in a sense, we also, we were so embedded with Christ that when he fulfilled it, it was not only fulfilled for us, but he, we fulfilled it with him. All right, lastly, Beecher Blues with his red. This is verse 20. I 
I would tell you that verse 20 um, is a verse that I would have us all, particularly those of us that struggle at times, to really think, really me? I mean, God really does accept me? God really, really does love me? That you would look at verse 20 and you would look at this life that Paul says he now lives. I live by faith. I put my hope and my confidence in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John Wesley, in his journal, when he got to this passage, reading Luther's commentary on Galatians, said this, I labored, I waited, and I prayed to feel that he who loved me and gave himself, gave himself for me. It takes sometimes a labor. It takes sometimes waiting. And I certainly believe that it takes praying that this becomes real to you. That it's not simply a doctrine on a shelf. But that you can say there was no reluctance from God to do this. That this is God's plan, His design, and that He did it because He loved you. He loved you. He loves you because He loves you. He loves me. He gave Himself for me. My name was on His lips as He perished in my place. My name is on His lips at the right hand of God the Father now. Your name. Me. Personal pronoun here. Me. That's the motivation to live the life as a Christian. That's the motivation for our obedience now. That we do it in response to His love for me and His giving Himself for me. Paul says in verse 21 that they're in this preaching, in this beating it into their heads, and in this seeing the law completely fulfilled now by the law, and this understanding, this comprehension of such a great love that he should give his only life, that it prompts this, this desire to live this new life that is working itself out in me in obedience to his glory. He said, if you don't believe that, and if you teach something else, then you're nullifying, you're nullifying the grace of God and the faith in Christ alone. You're nullifying it. That word nullify means to reject or set something aside. It was used for grain so that they could look at the grain and they would say this is moldy or it's not going to be good for consumption anymore, set it aside. But it was also used for inefficient city officials. They would just be dismissed. Oh, they're a city official in title, but we just set them aside. They're inefficient, incompetent. When we take this bread and we take this cup, 
we're not setting aside Christ as inefficient. We're saying he's the only one that is efficient. He is the only one that is competent for my salvation. And it is accomplished in him alone. So as we take this bread and we take this cup, this is the visual of our justification. We're eating and we're supping in fellowship with Christ who has given himself to us that we are now seen as his sons and daughters in intimate fellowship with him, even as he is in intimate fellowship with God, pronounced righteous. For this is not the atoning of blood and bulls, but the atoning of Christ on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take this cup, you would take this bread, and that you would give us this intimate understanding of how we are taking again the very life of Christ in hand and inside of us with these elements. And that it's his life that we want to live out of us. We die. We have no more life apart from him. And you see us as totally and completely in him now and forever. So we don't eat mournfully, but we eat with great joy and celebration as we celebrate our own life now, found in you through him and him alone. We ask your favors in Christ's name. Amen.